So today's scripture reading is from 1 Samuel chapter 31, and we will be reading the whole scripture. All right. Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Geboah. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and Malchishua, the sons of Saul. The battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. And when his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died and his three sons and his armor-bearer and all his men on the same day together. And when the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley and those beyond the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their cities and fled. And the Philistines came and lived in them. The next day, when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Geboah. So they cut off his head and stripped off his armor and sent messengers through the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. They put his armor in the temple of Ashtoreth, and they fastened his body to the wall of Belshan. But when the inhabitants of Jebesh-Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and went all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan, and they came to Jabesh and burned them there. And they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh and fasted seven days. May God bless the reading of his word. Last week, we uh, began looking at King Saul unraveling. He had a good start, didn't last long. He had a poor middle that we saw last week, and now a a bad end. Actually, what we're going to see uh, with these next two kings is exactly what we were saying together, reciting aloud together in our call and response, that each of these kings, Saul, David, and Solomon, all began with a good start, but each in turn, failed. And the trajectory of this biblical narrative that we've been working our way through is is really pointing to our need for a heavenly king, one whose kingdom will never end and will not fail. So if if we look at these 20 or so chapters that we're going through today that describe Saul's kingship, his reign, one theme continues to kind of repeat itself over the course of Saul's life and his reign. And that theme is fear. We kind of touched on this a little bit at the end of last week's sermon. The fear of man is what some people call it. Fear of man, we said, is is when people are big and God is small. Ultimately, what what we're talking about here is more than just a feeling It's more than just being terrified or being afraid. 
And there might be examples of the fear of man in our own lives where we're not necessarily terrified, where we're not trembling or shook or afraid. But the fear of man is still there. And ultimately, the fear of man may be boiled down to this, this question that we might ask ourselves. Who or what controls you? You see, when, when people are big and God is small, the former controls you. Right? It, it has a huge impact on how we act or what we say, but it also impacts or it affects what we choose not to say or what we choose not to do. And so there are examples of this in Scripture. And when you go back to earlier on in the Old Testament, the Israelites, they were freed from slavery in Egypt. They sent spies into the promised land to go check it out. And the people came back. They were afraid. And for them, they said that the enemies of the land were quite literally bigger and greater than they were. And so they didn't want to go in. And they said, let's go back to slavery in Egypt. It didn't matter that, that God himself said that he would fight for them just as he already did for them in Egypt. The fear of man was there. The people were big and God was small. And what, what influenced them, what guided them, what controlled them was not the word or the works of God. In the New Testament, we see another example of this fear of man in Peter. Peter, when this little slave girl comes to him and, and starts to identify him with Jesus, saying, you know, aren't you with Jesus of Nazareth? And Peter, so concerned with the opinions and the consequences of this little girl that he outright denies Jesus three times. But what's, I think what's amazing in Peter's life and his testimony is that his experience of this forgiveness of his sins, his understanding of even the, what we call the treachery of his denial leads itself, leads him to writing in his letter later on, you know, even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason, for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. So that's just, I think, knowing what Peter did, what he gone through, what he went through, makes this passage, what he is calling his fellow believers, it makes it so much more richer and deeper. Saul, too, experienced this fear, this misplaced fear. It characterized his entire reign. So last week we saw how it led him to offer a sacrifice, right? To secure favor from God because of his fear of the Philistines. You know, it was evident in his response, him trying to rationalize and justify to Samuel when he cast the blame on others. It's because, oh no, it's because the people were scattering. Or it's because, Samuel, you didn't arrive in time. Or the enemy is approaching. I, I forced myself to offer this sacrifice. Because I needed to manipulate God to give me his favor, favor before going into battle. Didn't matter that this was 
this wasn't exactly how he was supposed to do it. And so this week, we continue to trace this theme of the fear of man throughout the, uh, through to the end of Saul's life and his reign. And so three chapters we're going to kind of pull out through this whole chunk of this last half of 1 Samuel. Three chapters that kind of point at three things that Saul fears. Three things that kind of controlled Saul's actions, his, his leadership, his decisions, his kingship. And none of those things was a fear of God. It was, again, a misplaced fear. And so the first thing you can see on the PowerPoint behind me, 1 Samuel 18, Saul's fear of David. In verses 6 to 9, as they were coming home when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the woman came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the woman saying to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. Saul was very angry. And the saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. What more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. So clearly from these few verses we can see that he did not appreciate at all how the people, his own people, view David and compared David to him. It didn't help that Samuel's last words to Saul before they parted ways was that the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. Is David this neighbor? I mean, we know that he is. In that moment, perhaps Saul feels a tinge of jealousy mixed with a feeling of his reign, his kingdom, his kingship being threatened. Jealousy. Jealousy is like a scab that you keep picking at until the wound festers. How many of you, maybe some of you have a, a scar from a scab that you kept scratching at, kept picking at until it left behind a little nice gift for you. Jealousy is that, that itch where the more you scratch, the more it itches. It's a, it's a hunger that's never really satisfied, that leaves you feeling more empty. But it continues to persist and push. And this is what we, we see with Saul. He makes multiple attempts on David's life. He throws a spear at David multiple times. He even goes as far as to try to get David to marry his eldest daughter and and goes as far as to to spiritualize the whole thing, saying, you know, even earn her hand in marriage by demonstrating your commitment to the Lord and going into battle. But Saul's true purpose, the text reveals, is that he's hoping that the Philistines will take care of David for him. And so this doesn't work. And Saul tries again with his second daughter. And he knows David thinks, you know, David knows he's not really worthy to to marry into this royal family. He's he's coming from a very humble, very poor upbringing. And so, poor family background. So he, he, Saul gives David this opportunity to honor the king. He said, go and kill a hundred Philistines. Hoping again that his nation's enemies would take care of his personal enemy. And then even if that's not enough, Saul thinks 
Let me marry this daughter off to David, knowing that she might be a snare to him. Which is this kind of this theologically loaded term. It's used in scripture to talk about idols and idol worshipers. So, so maybe Saul perhaps is, is thinking that he knows that if he can't end David's life physically, he can end it spiritually. He can compromise David by sending his own daughter, who perhaps had these idolatrous inclinations, to be a trap for David. Saul was, was jealous. That jealousy made him do horrible, terrible things. But scripture is clear that fear here is the primary motivation. This is the thing that's really driving Saul and his leadership and his kingship. It's this fear of David. Twice it says, Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. Later on, but when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michal, Saul's daughter, loved him, Saul was even more afraid of David. So Saul was David's enemy continually. So his fear of David was because God was with David, not with him. This fear of man is the defining characteristic, or one of the defining characteristics of those who live apart from God. David wasn't the only thing or person that Saul feared. 1 Samuel 28, we see Saul's fear of the Philistines. So Saul sees this, this massive army, and he's afraid. The text says that his heart trembled greatly. But again, this fear of man is this question, right? Who or what controls you? It's more than a, just a feeling, but it's this all this fear, this perception, this understanding that impacts everything that you do or choose not to do. And the fear of man, this misplaced fear, leads Saul to do something completely opposite of what he did earlier on. So at some point, at one point early on in his reign, Saul had put out of the land all the medians and those who consulted the spirits. This was something that he was to be commended for. But near the end of his reign, his fear led him to compromise his own leadership again, his own reign again. Verses 6 to 7 of chapter 28. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. Then Saul said to his servants, Seek out for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servant said to him, Behold, there's the medium at Endor. And so, this is what he does. He disguises himself. He conceals who he is. And he goes even past the enemy lines or the enemy camp to, to visit this woman, this medium. And when he arrives, she says to him, Surely you know what Saul has done. How he has cut off the mediums and the necromancers from the land. Why then are you laying a trap for my life to bring about my death? But Saul swore to her by the Lord, as the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. Think about the character of Saul. The type of 
person that Saul is revealing himself to be, as someone who holds this authority in their government and spiritually as well. So at this point, he's willing to invoke God's name and his authority without any basis. He's, what he's doing is he's being willing to put words into God's mouth. Right? King Saul, because he's the king, he, he can say that no punishment shall come upon this woman because he's a king and he's not going to enforce it. Right? But now he's claim he's going so far as to claim that God agrees with him. That God is on the same page as him. It's, it's another example of how spiritually dull and spiritually insensitive and spiritually clueless that Saul is as a leader, as a king. It's another example of this misplaced fear. Because he feared the Philistines more than he feared God, this is the lengths to which he would go. The people were big, and God was small in his eyes. And so this medium conjures up Samuel. Samuel calls Saul out again for not obeying the voice of the Lord. And there's this connection that the narrative draws between fear and obedience, right? Who or what controls you? And when we're talking about fear, we're not necessarily just talking about being terrified here, right? When we talk about fear of God, it's more than just being terrified of him and being scared into doing things in obedience, right? It's this reverence, this awe, this understanding that God is God and we are not. And that leads us then to want to respect that and to behave or live a certain way. In the same way that if, if you were to stand before a, you know, NBA player who is twice your height or someone who is really famous, celebrity, Beyonce, or one of the presidents or former presidents, right? That would lead you perhaps to dress a certain way or to speak a certain way because you recognize the power and the presence of the person standing before you. Saul is a king who feared the people more than he feared God. And that led him to obey the voice of the people more than obeying the voice of the Lord. I mean, he said it himself in the end of the last week's message or passage. I have sinned for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. The consequence now is his demise. His kingdom, his reign is going to end. And, and, and not only that, but his, his life too. It's all going to end soon, the next day. This leads to Saul's third fear that we're highlighting this morning. 1 Samuel 31. Saul's fear of torture and death by, by the enemy, at the hands of the enemy. The, the next day, Saul, along with Israel, they're fighting the Philistines. The Philistines are winning. They're gaining ground. It says in verses 3 to 4 that the battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him. He was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to arm, his armor bearer, draw your sword and thrust me through with it. 
lest these uncircumcised Philistines come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. Saul knew that his, his time to die had come. But he also knew what would happen if he was captured. It wasn't going to be pretty. There wasn't going to be a happy ending. There would be mutilation, torture, execution. And he didn't want to face that or give them the satisfaction. And so what he did was he took control of his own life and he took his own life. Up until the end, Saul's decisions, his leadership, his reign was motivated by a misplaced fear. A fear more of people, whether it be David or the Philistines, than of God. A fear that led him to rationalization, to justification, rather than to repentance. A fear that led him to unchanged behavior. And rather, even more so, a doubling doubling down of his decisions. A fear that led him to having the wrong kind of sorrow. Paul writes in the New Testament that godly sorrow produces repentance that leads to salvation, but worldly sorrow produces death. And what is the difference there? I think when people are caught in sin, when leaders, myself included, when others, were caught in sin, we experience a kind of sorrow. But what kind of sorrow is it? And Saul, we, we saw this worldly sorrow that was more representative of the fact that he was sad that he got caught. Or he was sad that he messed messed up and now there's consequences that he has to face. Rather than a godly sorrow that saw us transgressing the commandment of God, going against him and leading to repentance and leading to salvation. And so again, we, we ask, when we look at the course over of the life of Saul and his reign. What is this intended to teach us today? I think first, Saul's kingdom may have ended, but God's kingdom is forever. The book of 1 Samuel, when we kind of zoom out, it ends on a grim note. We started off the book of 1 Samuel talking about how the people wanted a king like the other nations. And so they rejected God as king, and God gave them a human king. And we end the book of 1 Samuel with that first human king having a horrible end and dying. The Philistines have defeated Saul and his sons. They cut off his head, and the passage says they sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. And so that language of messengers and good news carrying it to the people. It's so interesting given us in our context today. It's so interesting in light of the New Testament, in light of the larger biblical story. You see, their message and their good news is that the king is dead, right? They have won a major victory over the Israelites and have decimated the royal family. And they think it's a victory for their gods too. They bring it back to their idols and to their people. But 
we know that God is not defeated. The story continues. His kingdom has no end. And so the good news that we have as Christians is this. Also the king is dead. Long live the king. It's this, uh, the king is dead, long live the king, is this traditional proclamation that announces both the, the, the death of the previous king and the uh, ascension of a new king. But in our case, however, we're not pronouncing the death of an enemy king. And neither are we announcing the death of one king in the reign of another. No, Jesus is king. Right? He has died on the cross and he has been raised on the third day. And he has been exalted to the right hand of God the Father. It says in Isaiah, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. A second implication for us this morning, which we also kind of hit on last week. The the book of Samuel and Kings gives us a glimpse into civic and spiritual leadership. Looking at these three kings also gives us a glimpse, a targeted glimpse into civic and spiritual leadership. Fear of man, it's, it's a real threat, particularly for those of us in leadership positions, whether it be in church, whether it be in government or in other places, and especially so as we follow Christ. Faithfulness and obedience are all the more necessary for leaders in spiritual positions, and I count myself as one of them. Jealousy, power, ego, ambition, these are all very, very dangerous things that can compromise the very best of us as we live to serve God and his people and to lead them. It's often said that if you live for people's acceptance, then you'll die from their rejection. What we see in the gospel, what's more, is that Jesus died from our rejection so that we can live with God's acceptance. The problem that we see in the life and reign of Saul is is not necessarily the, the presence of fear, per se, It's the misplacement of that fear. A fear of man more than of God. One commentator wrote this, that a lot of Americans believe that their major problem is something that has happened to them and that their solution is to be found within. Right? In other words, that they believe that they have an alien problem and that is to be resolved with an inner solution. Right? So leaders or members or people, right? Something has happened to us, some sort of tragedy, some sort of external circumstance that has caused us to be the way that we are or or that is troubling us or challenging us. And so the problem, the, the, the solution to that problem is to dig deep, to look within. But what the gospel says, however, is that we have an inner problem that demands an alien solution a solution outside of ourselves, a righteousness that is not our own. And we look to the, to the example of Saul, who didn't quite grasp that. 
that he needed God, and that the problem really came from within. It didn't come from David, it didn't come from the Philistines, it came from within. And so this morning we give thanks that ultimately we do have a king in Jesus who is better than Saul, who is better than David, better than Solomon, whose kingdom is forever. Let's pray. Gracious God, we give thanks to you, for you are our king. You are a king who loves us, who loves us so much that you would send your son to die on that cross for us, that we might have new life. We give thanks and praise for your kingdom is forever, and we can find peace and joy in that. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.